Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Would you like to fly in my beautiful balloon? Wasn't that a beautiful graphic? Well done to the clever people I work with. But I've been transfixed uh, between laughter and tears as a giant barrage balloon, a weather balloon, sailed across the entire continental North America, across all of Canada, across all of the United States, with nobody knowing how to bring it down. Nobody could pop the balloon. We were told that it was a Chinese spying balloon. Although given China has literally thousands of satellites crisscrossing the world and more than capable without being seen by any of us of doing all the spying that they need to do. And given that, well, according to what they tell us, China's already spying on all of us in our refrigerators, in our light bulbs, through Huawei and TikTok and every other portal you can imagine. Why would they need to sail a giant white balloon visible to the naked eye by every one of the people of Canada and the United States across whom it sailed rather beautifully, actually, in the early spring blue sky. What's it all about, Alfie, as Michael Caine famously said? Well, the truth is we still don't know. And the fact that we don't know probably means that it was all an expensive hoax. Joe Biden went on national television to commend the top gun for bursting a big, giant balloon. After several unsuccessful attempts, I may add, though he didn't, he hailed this great feat of the Air Force in bringing down this dangerous balloon. But if it was dangerous, why was it still sailing over the United States days after the danger of it was first alerted by, amongst others, Joe Biden? He said they were going to bring it down, and they did. Three whole days and nights after, he said they were going to bring it down. So was it? a clear and present danger to the safety of the Republic? Or was it a weather balloon that was blown off course? Was it even Chinese? There are reports today, and I pray to God that they are true, that it was a Canadian balloon which drifted off course into the United States of America because of highly unusual wind patterns. I don't know, but then neither do you. 
And the fact that you don't know, as I said, means it's entirely likely that the whole thing was a hoax because having brought it down, they are now, one presumes, unless there really are a banana republic, in possession of its remains. They are already in possession of what was inside it, what was attached to it. Their electronics people must have known what it was transmitting and to where. But the fact that none of us have been told any of this makes me think the whole thing may have been a lark, may even have been literally a hoax. One of these things that the gamers do, you know, uh, swatting, they call it, bringing in, in this case, the United States Air Force to <laughs> bring down this barrage balloon. Mind you, the United States has absolutely no history of lying in the public arena. It's 20 years ago today since Colin Powell, unfathomably known in the United States as Colin Powell, brought a little glass vial into the United Nations Security Council. He held it, oh, so theatrically. He spoke so devastatingly powerfully that the material in this little vial, making me wonder at the time, I hope he doesn't drop it and break it and wipe out the Security Council and everyone in the city of New York. Everything in this little glass vial, he said, could wipe out humanity across a simply enormous radius. But it was all a lie. The weapons that he was referring to did not exist. There were no nuclear weapons in Iraq. There were no chemical weapons in Iraq. There were no biological weapons in Iraq and had not been for many years previously. Now, you can say what you like about Colin Powell, but I presume that he wasn't an idiot. I therefore presume that he knew that he was lying to the world in pursuit of a predetermined decision to invade and occupy an Arab Muslim country in the apparent belief that it would make everything better that it would solve the problems of the Middle East and become the entire Muslim Ummah of two billion people. You could say that if he genuinely believed that, he was an idiot. If he didn't believe it but said it anyway, he was a knave. But fool or knave, Colin Powell had his acolytes. You can imagine... You may remember where you were when you saw this theatrical presentation. I was in the British Parliament. And because I, almost uniquely in Britain, knew for certain that this was a pack of lies, I say uniquely because I was the only person traveling to Iraq from Britain at that time. The Foreign Office and Downing Street refused to see me when I returned from every trip to Iraq in the onrush to war. I told them every time I came back, I want to brief you on what I found there, but they never once accepted it. And the reason 
was little Jack Straw, the member of the Church of England Synod, no less. A good Christian man who so fell in love with Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. As a matter of fact, Jack's wife began to get suspicious about Jack's love for Condoleezza Rice, not knowing that, well, <clears throat> Condoleezza wasn't exactly in the same market as Jack Straw. At least one presumes not, but how can one tell nowadays? So besotted was our Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, that he began to mimic exactly these theatrical devices. He used to hold up vials too. He wore for the first time, hopefully the last in recorded British history, a badge in Parliament everywhere that he went with the British and American flags conjoined. He made exactly the same false claims as did Tony Blair, though Jack did it more theatrically more often, that Iraq was in possession of a mountain of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons capability, and it was all a lie. Now, nobody thinks much about Jack anymore. Colin is no longer with us, I presume burning in the seventh circle of hell, which is the destination of all warmongering liars. But Jack is still around, though he never got his seat in the House of Lords because Channel 4 television, with a camera up their jumper, captured them in a fake Chinese takeaway scam in which they literally recruited him on camera to sell himself like a common prostitute to any Chinese company, although it was Channel 4 television that were the Chinese company. Why do I dwell upon it? Well, partly because the anniversary of the 20th uh, anniversary of this awesome presentation by Colin Powell reawakened all the feelings of rage in me that I felt at the time. Because I and my first guest this evening, officer on deck, Scott Ritter, we knew it was a lie, didn't think it was a lie, suspect it was a lie. We knew that it was a lie. And I tell you, to watch your leaders lying on television about a matter as grave as war, a war which cost the lives of a million people in Iraq and counting and spilled ISIS and Al-Qaeda all across the world, you've no idea the rage that that re awakens in one. So they were lying about the Iraq war, but you think they're telling the truth about the Ukraine war? I, I'm really putting this bluntly to you. You know that they lied to you about the Iraq war. You know that they lied to you about the Libyan war. But you still think they're telling you the truth about the Ukraine war? What's wrong with you? That's like an abused, deceived wife who answers Groucho Marx's famous question, who are you going to believe, me or the evidence of your own lying eyes? You've seen 
their lying eyes. Up close and personal. I'm reminding you of it now again. How can you believe a single word that these same people are telling you about a different war? Well, it's not often that I pray in aid the calculations of the Israeli security service, Mossad. And I'm not praying it in aid as gospel truth even this evening. But a remarkable document broken by the Eurasianist on Twitter earlier this evening didn't just come to my attention. It jumped off the page and hit me, albeit the original is written in Turkish. It is the calculation of Mossad that the Ukrainian armed forces are in fact, for practical purposes, now a defeated force. And that Western Ukraine now, for practical purposes, is no longer a functioning state. And that the NATO-Russia war being fought on Ukrainian territory is what we ought to call it now. According to the Mossad, Ukraine has lost more than 150,000 men dead. According to the Mossad, Ukraine has lost 257,000 men wounded. According to the Mossad, more than 50 British and Americans have been killed in the bunkers with the Azov and the Kraken battalions and more than 5,000 foreign fighters have been killed in the fighting. And the inference of the Mossad report clearly is that when Bakhmut falls as fall it will, if it is not evacuated by the nomic Zelensky, that that will, militarily speaking, be the end for the Western Ukrainian armed forces. Now, this is significant coming from Mossad for a number of reasons. First of all, love them or hate them, you'd have to concede they're a pretty sharp outfit and operation. But secondly, more importantly than that, Israel has just made a sharp turn in favor of Zelensky. Many people, like our good friend Gideon Levy, the preeminent Israeli journalist, thought that Netanyahu being back would tilt Israeli policy towards Moscow, but the opposite has happened. Netanyahu gave an interview this week in which he claimed that he was already helping Ukraine in all kinds of ways that he wasn't prepared to talk about. He shrugged when asked if he was prepared to be a mediator between these two countries, with both of which Israel maintains close, if complicated, relations. There are hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians in Israel. There are millions of Russians in Israel. There are millions of Israelis coming and going on a daily basis into both Russia and Ukraine. You might have thought, therefore, that he was a standout pick for a mediator, but he showed no enthusiasm for being so. And the reason is clear, that Biden 
Joe Biden and the NATO leadership have made the decision that they have no wish for a mediator, that notwithstanding what happens to how many Ukrainians, they are not prepared to allow this war to come to a negotiated end. So Netanyahu is the prime minister, but his security service has effectively stated today that Ukraine is a defeated military force and de facto no longer exists as an independent country. We'll be talking to both Garland Nixon and to the aforementioned officer Scott Ritter about both the balloon and the Ukraine. But I want to close with the subject we'll be discussing with our third guest this evening, an up-and-coming star, I promise you, Jamie Wright. We'll be talking about what this balloon means for China. You know, Karl Marx said, a cloud no bigger than a man's hand can be a harbinger of great storms to come. Is that balloon, that cloud, a harbinger of a great storm to come between the United States and China? You'll find out if you stay tuned with me and the mother of all talk shows. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Was the Chinese balloon spying? A, yes. B, no. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel if you have not already done so. I'm closing in on a quarter of a million subscribers and I'm determined to get there as soon as possible. And if you're on the YouTube, don't forget the super chat mechanism by which you can donate. You can also vote on my Telegram channel where the most perspicacious of voters are normally to be found. We'll see if that's true also tonight. The Telegram address is t.me forward slash George Galloway. And on the YouTube community poll, what I call my base, the masses, where 7,800 people have already voted and the show has just begun. So you can vote on all of these portals. I have known Scott Ritter for uh, more than 20 years, uh, getting on for a quarter of a century, in fact. I consider him an expert not just on war and disarmament, but increasingly on international politics. Steeped in all of these conflicts, 
that he and I and most of you have had to live through, he now understands what's what and who's who with almost uncanny accuracy. So accurate that he keeps getting banned from one platform or another. But public demand keeps bringing him back. I'm glad to say he'll be speaking at the Rage Against the War Machine rally at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. shortly. We'll talk to him also about that. He is the one and only. Officer on deck, Scott Ritter, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Let me ask you, first off, if I may, uh, about this Mossad report. The numbers that are given are uncannily close to numbers that you yourself uh, have uh, predicted, uh, including on this show. The numbers of the foreigners killed is slightly higher than I imagined. But do you think the numbers are accurate? And if you do, do you agree with the conclusion that Ukraine is close to a beaten military force? I believe the numbers are actually conservative. Uh, the Mossad, uh, as you said, they're a sharp outfit. Um, I have personal, rela not relationship, but uh, I've worked with them. Uh, in Israeli intelligence in general, and uh, they aren't prone to, um, you know, wild speculation. So when they commit to a number, uh, it's a number that they feel comfortable. But one of the problems with the battlefield in Ukraine is that the Ukrainian government uh, has a habit, the Ukrainian army has a habit of abandoning bodies, and then the Ukrainian government doesn't effectively account for them. So I believe that that number of dead uh, could easily be double the number that the Israelis have uh, put out. And, uh, but in any case, I, um, I firmly support the conclusion that the Ukrainian military is a defeated army and that Ukraine as a nation state is a defeated nation. The Battle of Bakhmut is becoming the, the, the Stalingrad of this conflict where both sides are pouring in uh, resources and uh, taking a geographical feature which um, although important, doesn't have to be the, um, you know, the decisive battle uh, for Ukraine. Uh, you know, there's more defensible uh, terrain uh, just to the west of Bakhmut with higher, uh, you know, higher hills where you have better fields of fire, uh, et cetera, that the Ukrainians could fall back on. But this battle has been going on since May, and both sides have uh, committed um significant resources. I mean, Ukraine has burned through anywhere between 14 and 20 brigades worth of troops. Brigade has four to 5,000. Each brigade is suffering about 90% casualties before they're withdrawn. You do the math. This has been a horrific fight for the Ukrainians. And there's a lot of political um, you know, issues attached to this battle. So to lose this battle will be devastating from a morale standpoint for the Ukrainians, in addition to being a significant uh, military defeat, one which they simply cannot uh, bounce back from. Just to give you an example, again, General Zeluzhny, the uh, commander of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, has been pressuring the West to provide him with six brigades worth of material. So he believes that six brigades could have an impact on the battlefield. Ukraine has burned through 14 to 20 brigades in the Battle of Bakhmut alone. That just shows you just how devastating this battle has been in what uh, a defeat there will mean for the Ukrainian military. 
What is 14 uh, brigades for the uninitiated? How many soldiers do you think they've lost in Bakhmut? The uh, a brigade, again, is between four and 5,000. Let's, let's go with four because it's wartime and they may not get full complement. So, you know, four times 14 is um, 76,000 troops. Uh, that's marine math. I could be off here. I don't have my calculator, but uh, 76,000. Then we take 90% casualties of that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're basically talking around 68,000 uh, casualties. Generally speaking, given what's going on in Ukraine, uh, you're looking at about a 50-50 split. So that's 30,000 dead, 30,000 wounded. Yeah, the reason I press you on that is that would actually meet the calculation uh, that uh, von der Leyen, uh, when she said they had lost 100,000, and would uh, tally with the Mossad prediction if they had lost that number since she opined uh, in Bakhmut. That would almost give you exactly 154,000 dead. Uh, but uh, as you say, uh, we don't know exactly, and we oughtn't to uh, dwell on maths that might be wrong, but I was asking you what would happen if they would draw from Bakhmut or they are overrun and defeated in Bakhmut. Does that leave uh, the southern part of Ukraine, the coastline and so on, virtually undefended? Ukrainians have no more meaningful reserves. They have anywhere from forty to 70,000 troops uh, undergoing training right now in the West. But these troops haven't been fully trained, uh, nor have they been equipped. And uh, many of them won't be ready to be committed to this battle until sometime in uh, May, June, July uh, of this year. Uh, and when they are committed, they'll be committed piecemeal. So Ukraine is going to have to do with what they have on hand right now. And they have committed um, much of their reserves to the Bakhmut fight. But Russia is engaged in offensive operations along the entire length of the, um, of, of, the, of, the, of the front lines. And so Ukraine is committing reserves to fighting in the Zaporizhia and Ulagder and in uh, other places uh, up in the, near Kharkov. Um, so when Russia breaks through in any one of these areas, Ukraine will have insufficient forces to seal that, uh, seal that gap. And then this will just begin a process of collapse. Um, it's not that Ukraine won't have any defenders. They still have 200,000 men, but they'll be spread along a line uh, so thinly that they, there's no way they can effectively defend against the mass of forces that Russia will be able to uh, apply to the, uh, to the military problem. So it is literally game, set, match. There's no hope for Ukraine. Uh, any wise civilian leader at this point in time would recognize that continued resistance is futile and seek to preserve as much human life and frankly speaking, as much territorial integrity as he can with the negotiated peace settlement with the Russians. To what do you attribute the uh, new success of the Russian military operation? Is it just the increase in the number of men? Is it their superior firepower? Is it their apparently unending supply of ammunition, artillery? Uh, wh what are the main factors? Well, let's remember that Russia had actually won this war back in June. A lot of people don't recognize that. They pretend not to pay attention to that. But um, when Russia consolidated its forces in the Donbass region, they were carrying out very effective um, offensive operations that were destroying the Ukrainians. What the Ukrainians had for them was the ability to bring 70,000 new troops who were pumped up with tens of billions of dollars of NATO equipment and create a new 
reality in the war that Russia had to then adapt to. And Russia has adapted to that. And so we're now in a phase where Russia has um, brought to bear overwhelming military force. Russia has always had a highly trained military. It's still the case. They now just have more of them dedicated. Russia's always had very good equipment. That's still the case. They just have more of it. And as you alluded to, Russia has nearly an endless supply of ammunition. And when you have a 10 to 1 artillery advantage, um, that's really all you all you need. And, um, you know, the Ukrainians this time simply don't have anything to match that. And that's, that's where we're at today. I, I use a basic military math I, I, I call burn rate versus replenishment rate. And right now, the Ukrainians are burning through resources and they have a very low replenishment rate. The Russians, on the other hand, aren't burning through resources and they have a massive replenishment rate. And logic tells you that the Russian equation is going to beat the Ukrainian equation every day of the week. According to the Daily Mail uh, in, in Britain today, uh, the British army would run out of ammunition in one single day if Britain was at war with Russia, which makes the belligerence of the British uh, leadership all the more extraordinary. I'm debating at the Oxford Union uh, next week, I think, with the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and the head of the British Army. It's a point I shall be making to them. They better bring their tin hats. But isn't, it, uh, isn't there a gap, a crucial gap, between the rhetoric of America's allies and their actual ability to bring anything to the fight? As I said earlier, General Zaluzhny said he needed six brigades to carry out what he deemed to be an effective offensive operation in a very narrow sector of the front. Great Britain today would have trouble mobilizing two brigades in its entire military. Two brigades, its entire military. You could take one of the big soccer stadiums in England, fill it up with the British Army, you'll still have 30,000 empty seats. So it's not that it's just they would run out of ammunition in a day, they would run out of manpower in a week. The British Army would no longer exist one week into a war of the intensity that's been going on in Ukraine today. And it's not just the British Army. The German Army can't get, get out of the barracks. The French army can't get out of the barracks. NATO can't get out of the barracks. So, you know, the, the, the most effective fighting force right now in, in, in Europe is the United States Army from the NATO perspective. And we don't have enough of them. I mean, we needed we had 300,000 troops during the Cold War immediately reinforceable with 250,000. We have now 100,000. And that's pretty much all we can bring to bear to this problem. We don't have any more. And so why? <laughs> It reminds me of the Top Gun movie where, you know, the, the uh, air combat commander turns to Maverick and says, uh, son, your mouth is writing checks. Your body can't cash. And that's exactly what I'm telling NATO. Your mouths are writing checks. Your bodies can't cash. You don't have the resources. Moreover, you don't have the military industrial capacity to build the equipment you would need for the resources. And you don't have the manpower. Meanwhile, because of your actions, the Russian military is now expanding to 1.5 million. They have a defense industry that's chugging on all cylinders using the world's best military equipment. NATO just made the Russian problem, even by orders of magnitude, more difficult for them, and they don't have a solution. They should shut up about war, start embracing a negotiated peace settlement, seeking a long-term uh, European security framework that has Peaceful coexistence is the goal, not this ridiculous dream of somehow Western domination of Russia. Isn't going to happen.
All hat and no cattle. Uh, the dog that hasn't barked in this uh, conflict is, uh, is uh, Belarus. We keep hearing that uh, forces are massing in Belarus and so on. Uh, do you expect that front to open at any stage? If the front does open, uh, given the current set of circumstances, uh, it will be only Russian troops that go in, I believe. Uh, Belarus's president, Lukashenko, has been quite consistent that uh, he does not want his troops going to war against Ukraine. But if Ukraine attacks Belarus, or, and this is probably the most likely scenario, Poland seeks to enter Belarus, then Belarus together with Russia and this very powerful joint group of forces they've built up uh, will respond decisively, decisively. And those are the conditions I think you will see. I don't, again, Belarus has said from day one, their job is to protect Russia from being stabbed in the back by NATO. So while Russia is focused on Ukraine, Belarus's job is to hold Poland and the Baltic states in check. And they've done a very good job of that. Um, and that's their continued mission. But now they have to guard against the potential of a Polish sortie into Western Ukraine. And if the Poles do this, they will be defeated decisively by this joint Belarus-Russian military group. Now, I can't let you go, Scott, uh, not least for nostalgic reasons of when we first started to uh, cross each other's paths and uh, effectively end, ending in acting in, in concert, trying to stop the absolute cataclysm and disaster that the Iraq war became. It's 20 years ago today uh, since Colin Powell's a famous appearance at the Security Council of the United Nations, holding his little vial of, uh, of weapons, uh, biological weapons, which he said could wipe out uh, the world or begin the wiping out of the world. Uh, I was enraged all over again when I saw the anniversary pictures today. How did you feel about it? And how did you feel at the time when you saw him do it? Well, George, as you said, uh, you and I go back a long way. And um, I remember when you invited me to march alongside you in London uh, to Hyde Park and speak. And I remember telling you how uncomfortable that made me, how very uncomfortable that made me. But because of the importance of the cause, I put away my personal discomfort and joined you in a noble cause. Yeah. And um, it's a cause that yeah. you and I, and I don't think people understand the sacrifices you made and, and I made um, toward trying to stop this war. We were attacked viciously. Uh, they came at us from every angle possible. Uh, but, you know, the truth will out. We did well, I think, in terms of integrity um, yeah. and message. Yeah. I was in Japan when Colin Powell gave his presentation. I was actually trying to speak to the, remember, going the extra mile. I was speaking to the Japanese parliament, trying to get them to vote against um, uh, their willingness to provide support to, the, to an invasion of Iraq. And uh, I was speaking for the International Press Club. And we delayed the presentation so I could watch Colin Powell's uh, speech. And what I said at the time, immediately after watching, is that every word he said was a lie. Every single word he said was a lie. And how did I feel? I had the highest respect for Colin Powell before that. I mean, I've known him for a long time. He's backed me up many times during the war, during my inspection regime, et cetera. And to watch him debase himself like that for a cause that he knew was wrong, um, was just it sickened me to, to see the Secretary of State of the United States lobby for the international community. And I will tell this today. I had hoped prior to that 
that my government could maintain a monicum of integrity and honor and dignity. From that moment on, my government has been known to me as only a government of lies. Everything we say is a lie. And this is documented proof. We don't tell the truth anymore about anything. And you can compare and contrast what went on there with Colin Powell standing before the world trying to scare them about weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist with what's going on today where the United States is trying to scare the world about a Russian threat that doesn't exist. Lies, lies, lies. It sickened me then, sickened me to this day. You're an officer and a gentleman. Thank you, Scott Ritter, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Coming up uh, shortly is Jamie Wright, who is an up-and-coming political commentator, a media analyst and columnist. I'm very impressed by his work. I think that you will be uh, too. I mentioned uh, earlier uh, that uh, the Super Chat mechanism was the one to support the show keep the show going twice a week. I gave you the figures for last week, 940,000 viewers. How about that? Douglas is in Harrogate in Yorkshire on Ukraine. Go ahead, Douglas. Hi, hi, George. This is the... Uh, All right, mate, go ahead. This is the uh, first time I've uh, spoke to you. I must say that in the past year and a half, I must say that I really appreciate everything that you've been sharing with us. I hope you're well and, and your family okay. too. By the grace of God, yes. That's not a Harrogate accent. Where are you from originally? No, I come from Ayrshire in uh, Scotland. Okay. Uh, okay, good man. What, what, Tell me, what would you like to say? Well, what I say is, uh, you know, I honestly believe this Zelensky is a bit of a clown. He's been parading about on all the... Uh, He's been parading about in all these movie awards and all the rest of it. And uh, I, I must say, I think that the award might be different if it wasn't him that was actually the leader, if it was somebody else in charge of Ukraine. What I want to ask you is, what's your opinion on that? If you think if Ukraine had a different president, what do you think? Well, uh, thanks for that, uh, Douglas. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm certain that he will not be the president for very much longer. Uh, my guess is that the head of the military will be the ultimate leader of uh, Western Ukraine. And I think you can see the beginnings of a wide-scale mutiny now. You may have seen some uh, clips uh, that were released this week. Uh, despite the censorship, they were got out with soldiers uh, uh, confronting Zelensky uh, at the front line, denouncing him for the decisions that he has made, uh, um, especially around uh, Mariupol and uh, also in Solidar, and by extension, implication in the Battle of Bakhmut. I do think that the uh, Ukrainian military, and if the Mossad figures are right, it's hardly surprising are beginning to smell the need for revolt. So I don't expect that Zelensky will be the president for very much longer. But uh, I think the main thing that uh, has been missed in all of this is that Zelensky ran for office on a promise, on a, an election pledge to make peace with Russia. Zelensky was either a liar on a, on a Everestian scale uh, 
or he genuinely wanted to make peace with Russia but was uh, precluded from doing so, was blocked from doing so, either by other political forces in Ukraine or perhaps even more significantly political forces outside Ukraine. But his election platform, on which he won the election, unexpectedly, I should remind you, was uh, that he would implement the Minsk agreements, that he would reset relations with Russia. Poroshenko, who uh, was the man that negotiated the Minsk agreements, on the other hand, was entirely cynical about it, as he told us again in the last week that uh, all the Minsk agreements uh, did was to allow Ukraine to build up its NATO-backed military strength and to prepare an anti-Russian coalition around the issue of Ukraine uh, in, uh, in the eight years that they gained uh, since the negotiation of Minsk. Thank you, uh, Douglas, indeed. Uh, that poll is now 12,000 votes, but the outcome is not appreciably changing. And that's remarkable because if it was a Chinese balloon, uh, it kind of obviously was spying. But our governments have now reached the current nadir in their own public opinion that nobody believes them, even if they're telling the truth. It might not have been a Chinese balloon. It might have been spying only on the weather. But it clearly had underneath it uh, camera equipment. It was filled with sensors. It was gathering information, which I presume is a definition of spying. Here's Andrew in Cardiff on Russia. Go ahead, Andrew. Hi, George. Uh, glad to, uh, to uh, talk to you. Um, my question is, like, during this time of terrible war between NATO, USA, Russia, um, the, the, the thing I worry about most is the possibility of a miscalculation that will lead us to some kind of maybe nuclear war. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it's a very grave uh, danger. The, the, the United States now has hundreds of nuclear weapons in Europe. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember how hundreds of thousands of us marched in the streets in the 1980s about the possibility of dozens or scores of nuclear weapons. Now we have hundreds of nuclear weapons and of a new generation also with much more powerful and deadly nuclear weapons are now seeded uh, plentifully across the European continent. So look at the chances for mishaps. Look at the possibility of miscalculation. What if somebody launches, what if a rogue launches one of these weapons? Is today's equivalent of Colin Powell, Anthony Blinken, going to phone the Russians and say, we didn't mean that nuclear attack that just devastated uh, one of your major cities, and do you think Russia will accept that? The possibility for miscalculation is simply enormous, and vice versa on the other side. There are thousands of nuclear weapons in the Russian armory. 
And they too are operated by human beings. Human beings and computers, both of which can malfunction at any time. Or merely, not a malfunction, but a misunderstanding about the ultimate intentions of the other party. Maybe the Russians will think that this or that movement is a precursor to that or this movement and we have to counter it preemptively. Maybe on the other side, the same thing uh, will happen. The possibility of tumbling into a conflagration from which likely none of us at all will emerge is simply enormous. Last word to you, Andrew. Well, the neocons have got a lot to answer for. Okay, many thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, well, was the Chinese balloon spying? Yes, 36. No, 64 on Twitter. On YouTube, yes, 24. No, 76. On Telegram, yes, 19. No, 81. And on the YouTube community poll, yes, 27. No, 73. If you're on the YouTube, please donate to keep the two shows a week going, but perhaps as significantly to allow us to launch a third show called Moats America on a Friday night late, uh, as soon as we possibly can. Nobody could doubt, I think, that there's a clear and pressing need for that. And if you agree, please help make it possible. I'm amazed at this poll. I honestly didn't expect the numbers to break in the way that they are. Uh, my guess would have been that the Chinese balloon was spying. I mean, what else was it doing? It may have been spying on, on weather uh, patterns. It doesn't seem likely it was spying on anything more dangerous because that's what satellites are for. That's what human intelligence is for. That's what your Chinese-made fridge is for. So it can spy on what you're taking out of the fridge in the morning for your breakfast, how many eggs you eat, and what the sell-by date is on the groceries you just bought. It doesn't seem likely to me that this balloon was truly a danger. The conservatives in the United States are making hay with the fact, quite rightly, that if it was as dangerous as they now say it is, why did it take five days to shoot it down? Why did it take several attempts for an F-16 to shoot down a balloon? But here's the rub. A balloon almost exactly the same as this one over Montana crossed the United States three times during the presidency of Donald J. Trump. So either it's a danger and the United States is defenseless against barrage balloons, which, if true, is a bit of a hint to other countries to invest in lots of barrage balloons, or it isn't a danger of any kind, and that this hullabaloo is more to do with building a wave of hatred, fear, and suspicion of China in preparation for, as I said earlier, great storms to come. Tony in Liverpool is always a great caller. He's on the line now. Let's hear from him. Tony, go ahead. Evening, George. Um, I was just going to mention the, uh, the comments, the bizarre comments from General Sir Richard Barons, which 
I mean, essentially just hands a complete propaganda victory to Russia when he says, if we were to uh, attempt to go to war with Russia, we'd be lucky if we lasted a day with the munitions that we have on the shelves at the moment. Um, and I'm sure that's not just uh, pertinent to the United Kingdom. I think that's probably the same right across the, the NATO nations in general. But when you look at the, the lack of heavy industry to match Russia's generation um, production of weapons, of munitions, um, in, in short order, how on earth do these people uh, think that they're ever going to enter any sort of battle at all with Russia uh, and win? I mean, in what world do they actually think they're going to even turn up for battle, let alone win? Well, these are points I shall make in the Oxford Union next week uh, to the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace. Better bring your tin hat, Ben. And to the head of the British Armed Forces, all of which, Army, Navy and Air Force, could fit into Villa Park and with some uh, space for uh, the politicians to squeeze in for the selfie opportunities. These are points that are obvious. I will never criticise uh, a, a general for telling the truth. And what he's done is tell the truth. Uh, I don't suppose that Moscow needed him to say so, uh, for them to know that uh, the British uh, leaders uh, are going around the world just like Mussolini did with Hitler's army. They're going around the world threatening people with America's army because we don't have armed forces that are uh, capable of fighting a nuclear-armed superpower like Russia. We simply don't. So why do we talk as if we did? It's all hat and no cattle. It is mouths writing checks that bodies cannot cash, as Scott Ritter put it earlier. So why do it? I mean, this is what I find most offensive. Our soldiers are underpaid, poorly housed, ill-equipped, without armour and without ammunition. As the general said, in one day fighting Russia, we would run out of ammunition. So why talk as if none of these things were true? Do you think Russia doesn't know the true state of affairs? You don't need a barrage balloon to know which way the wind blows. Britain is a toothless bulldog. So why does it persist in barking like it was one of these banned species that could tear you to pieces? It can't. It's a toothless bulldog. So stop acting big, Ben. You know you're so very little, Benji. Uh, now, YouTube comments are flooding in tonight. It's a huge audience. Whitey City comments. Uh, YouTube, sorry, community comments. Richard says the sheer hysteria coming out of the US in the past 48 hours was pure comedy gold. Watching them lose their minds over a balloon was priceless. They must make a South Park episode out of this. Have to. They will, I hope, but... More likely, Hollywood is already now reviewing scripts for a Top Gun sequel in which flight officer, Air Stewart, Tom, no, 
What's the, what's the little guy's name? I've forgotten. <laughs> Better not go further down that. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise will get the gig to shoot down the balloon. And after several attempts, will <laughs> manage to do so. Morpheus X says, last time the American scare of a weather balloon was Roswell in the 1940s. Here we go again. The aliens are coming. Run, Americans! Uno says Zelensky moves to Miami with Bolsonaro. And Jay Can says, Gigi, please confront Ben Wallace on behalf of an eight-year-old British-born girl and her mum still stranded in Afghanistan, left by our armed forces in Kabul airport. And Barry says, signed winder missiles are $400,000 each. So how many did they fire at this balloon? John Pilger says, several attempts were made before the balloon was brought down. And we now know at $400,000 per missile. Why did they fire an air gun? Why didn't they throw a dart at it? Anurban is in India. Don't get many calls from India. On Ukraine. Anurban, most welcome. Go ahead. Uh, hello, George. I'm Anurban from India. I have two questions for you. So, yeah. first of all, yeah, I'm, am I audible? Yes, you're live to the world, sir. Okay. So, first of all, uh, the West doesn't uh, want to buy Russian oil, right? But uh, India is buying Russian oil, and we are exporting it to the West in a much higher price. And it's okay. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Right? Everyone knows that. But it's okay for them to buy. And my question is here, when this war ends, when there is a peace negotiation and there would be a resuming on trade, Will the relationship will go back to the way that was in before this war? Because sooner or later this uh, war so. will end. Yeah, all wars. And uh, what's have to your end perspective on that? That how will the relationship with uh, Russia and the West will move on from there? Will we have a uh, like, no. uh, a Cold War type situation where there was two parties, no. or uh, we'll have it a will multiple war? Normal. It will never. It will never be glad, confident morning again in relations between any European country and Russia and, for that matter, China, which are growing ever closer by the day. Uh, the uh, world has now shifted on its axis. The tectonic plates have well and truly shifted, and they are settling in their new positions, and they will not go back to the status quo ante. So India will go on making a bonanza selling Russian oil as Indian oil, even though India brought it from Russia and is now selling it at a premium. That's how stupid the whole thing is. Russia will never again place a single cent in dollars in any foreign bank. Uh, they had four or five hundred billion dollars of their money stolen. Any oligarch who any longer buys a Western football club or parks their yacht in a Western harbor needs their head examined. Uh, Russia will never again trust the West and doesn't need the West. We, on the other hand, need Russia. Because Russia's economy is built on real things. 
real things. We in the West, if, I, if I'm a lawyer and I write a letter to you as a lawyer, the cost of that letter is included in our GDP. That's called an economic activity. Me consulting you on a legal matter. A prostitute sleeping with a client in Soho is counted in our GDP. A drug dealer in Toxteth selling crack to a crackhead is counted in our GDP. That's how different our economy is to theirs. Their economy is taking things out of the ground that the rest of the world desperately needs. Oil, gas, coal, steel, magnesium, all these rare earth materials, gold, silver, real things that the real world needs and uses. That's what the Russian economy is built on. They have things that we need. They no longer need our custom and will never seek it again. I'm supposed to have been on a break six or seven minutes ago. Jamie Wright has been experiencing technical problems uh, joining us from Beijing. We'll try to get him another day. But coming up after this short break, who'll tell us all about that red balloon, white red balloon. It's Garland Nixon. He's coming up now. Stay tuned. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Well, uh, as you just heard from uh, one of our correspondents, uh, there is absolute hysteria in the United States about what may well turn out to be a weather balloon. And I pray to God it turns out even to be a Canadian weather balloon. What it was all about, there's no one better place to tell us than our man in Washington, D.C., the coolest of commentariat cats, Garland Nixon, who joins us now. Garland, it's quite a to-do about a weather balloon, isn't it? Well, you know, George, if you look at the circumstances in in totality, as uh, Bakhmut and town after town falls in Ukraine and official after official resigns, as it certainly appears appears that we're facing the the mother of all debacles in Ukraine, um, it looks like the national security state has has cooked up the the equivalent of a large white canvas version of the Steele dossier um, to guide conservatives uh, gently away from um, the Ukraine, Ukraine debacle and come up with a new discussion, which is let's point them towards 
uh, towards uh, China and, you know, try to put this whole debacle behind us in Ukraine. That, that, that it seems like a major distraction to me. And it's it's pretty preposterous. Now, I'm, I'm Joseph Heller uh, would have fun with it, though. Uh, if this balloon was a clear and present danger to the security of the United States, uh, why wasn't it brought down on the very first day that it was spotted? Why was it allowed to traverse, presumably collecting all the information it wanted or was able to, uh, from right across the United States, from coast to coast? Why was it allowed to sail over Canada uninterrupted? Yes, and it if it was such a danger, uh, why didn't the United States military bring it down? Exactly. And we now find, uh, which is fairly easy to deduce, that they've been tracking it across the ocean and across Canada. And so they knew it was coming. So the question is, if it's a terrible threat to our safety that the Chinese can monitor the barometric pressure above the strategically critical but very small town of Billings, Montana, I would have thought that they would have uh, deduced this beforehand and shot this thing down, oh, maybe a thousand miles or so before it even hit the coast since they were watching it. But, of course, if they'd done that, then they wouldn't have the um, they wouldn't be able to plaster all of the news websites and 24 hours a day talk about uh, this uh, horrific, frightening balloon. I mean, it's not so much wag the dog as, as wave, the, wave the balloon, burst the balloon. Uh, according to John Pilger, uh, it took several sidewinders to actually hit it with an F-16. Doesn't say much for the top guns. Well, you know, and in reality, I mean, if we look at it, you know, I've been doing a little bit of research today. We find that apparently this happened twice during the Trump administration. This has happened earlier in the Biden administration. Apparently, there's another weather balloon that floated over South America here in the last few days. So it doesn't appear that a an errant weather balloon drifting uh, in a westerly direction across the United States seems to be a, you know, a strange thing to happen. Here in Maryland, where I live, the Maryland, Washington, Baltimore area for a number of months, um, a few years back, and people can find that online, as, we, as, if you, as you drove across the bay, you'd look up in the sky and see this big white blimp thing. And it was a Pentagon balloon that apparently was, uh, you know, being tested. So the idea of balloons floating around is not really that odd. Uh, it just appears that this particular instance of a balloon floating across the United States is opportunistic. Um, otherwise, I mean, if you think about it right now, the fall of Bakhmut, of Solodar, the Ukraine um, project is collapsing all around itself. The, um, the you know, in, in fact, if they weren't covering the balloon, there may be those who may wonder why they're not covering the massive protest in the UK, the Ukraine and France. So it seems to me a big part of balloon gate, as it were, is to distract us from um, the many problems that the neocons have uh, have brought forth, and they're all coming together at one time. So they're going to refocus and say, okay, we're done with all of these disasters. Let's try to start a bigger disaster in the Pacific. Well, uh, you don't need a, to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, as Bob uh, almost put it. And the wind is blowing ill uh, through the Straits of Taiwan and the South China Sea and in the Pacific. This presumably is, as I mentioned earlier, a harbinger of a great storm to come with China once they get their 
backside uh, kicked in Ukraine. Uh, where else to go for another war but China? That's what it's all about, isn't it? Certainly. I think um, we, we keep an eye on Iran and China. The um, the neocons are up to in North Korea. You know, they're up to miscreant activity all over the globe. But there are a number of problems because they're not taking into people aren't taking into account what the fallout. And I use that I'm reticent to use that word, but we'll use it metaphorically. What the political fallout, the economic fallout will be from the this the, the we'll call it the mother of all debacles in Ukraine. Certainly there will be political fallout in uh, Europe. There's uh, the, their economies are crashing. The U.S. economy can't be far behind. So to have a disaster of this magnitude, they're going to have to regroup from that disaster in order to then um, focus their ire towards the Pacific. And I don't think the regrouping is going to be easy as easy as they would like it to be. Um, I think the neocons and uh, a lot of people in the U.S. press think that they can just walk up to Russia on any given Tuesday and say, Okay, you know, um, we've gone on far enough with this. We're going to present a uh, some options for you to choose, and then we can go on about our way. And I think the Russians are going to be in a position where they can impose the um, outcome on not only Ukraine but on the issue of NATO expansion in their region. I think that the um, the Europeans are going to be. Um, hard pressed to try to hold on to this idea that they can um, surround Russia with military hardware, which might I add, is quite, quite rapidly running out as they throw it into the giant Russian trans, uh, trash compactor in Ukraine. So th it's not going to be as easy to disentangle from this debacle as they would like it to believe they would like us to believe so they can move on to a to a, to a far larger debacle. Yeah, I, I, if they know they're losing, Russia surely knows they're winning. So the uh, cost of any settlement uh, has risen exponentially from what it would have been the day before the 25th of February last year. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that the price that will have to be paid is now no longer restricted to Ukraine. Uh, I think the promise made to Gorbachev by uh, George Bush uh, Sr. Uh, is back on the table. Uh, the, the promise that NATO would not expand one inch to the east of Germany uh, is now back on the agenda and the Russians will not be satisfied until at least new security arrangements are made east of Germany which satisfy them and which uh, Putin called for as long ago as the Munich uh, conference in 2008. He laid out there the red lines, laid out there uh, the ways in which a security architecture which served the needs of both sides uh, in the eastern part of Europe could easily have been agreed. But uh, hubris, uh, drunk on uh, power at the end of the Cold War, uh, the NATO, West, United States, call it what you will, was not able or willing to uh, agree to that. Uh, let's turn to the political uh, front, uh, Garland. Um, I know there's a certain element of repetition uh, in my next question to you, but is Joe Biden all there? Does he really know? Did, does, did he see this balloon? Uh, or does he see balloons floating by him most days of the week? 
You know, as we get closer to 2024, um, the questions about Joe Biden um, are increasingly not about whether he'll run or whether he's competent, because I think those questions have been sufficiently answered by his actions, his frequently, you know, giving speeches and then wandering around on the stage for considerably longer than it took him to give the speech to try to find an exit from the stage. I think the question now is how the Democratic Party is going to get rid of Joe Biden and, of course, you know, to get rid of Joe Biden, they first must get rid of Kamala Harris because she is a uh, she is a, a you know a, a political disaster waiting to happen. They have to hide her right now. She's constantly hidden. So the Democratic Party is in a real mess in figuring out how to get rid of Joe Biden. Meanwhile, you have to add this factor, and it's very important. Donald Trump has been getting louder and louder in his pushback against the Ukraine conflict. He recently came out and said, "We must demand an end to this." So. He's now uh, joining the anti-war voices. He's joining the chorus for um, an end to the conflict. Now, of course, Donald Trump would add in, uh, within 24 hours, I could end it. But you would expect anyone who's running for president to make that kind of a claim. So how um, the Trump factor and the Trump voice calling for um, an end to the Ukraine war affects the Democrats' ability to find a replacement for the Biden-Harris debacle. Um, will be will be quite interesting. And one could argue the whole balloon gate thing may be an attempt by the deep state and by people in power to try to start distracting us. They're, they got to get us away from thinking about Ukraine because that ha- is turning out to be um, a situation that they've lost control of and they don't have the, the ability to control the, uh, the narrative on it anymore. Uh, are the papers in Delaware, uh, the ones behind the Corvette, safely in the custody of one Hunter Biden, crackhead uh, of uh, Wilmington, Delaware, uh, the ones in Biden's other uh, multi-million dollar uh, um, uh, properties? He's done rather well for a blue-collar uh, Democrat who, uh, when he first entered the Senate, claimed he was the poorest man ever to enter the Senate. Well, he ain't poor now. He's got lots of mansions and they're finding uh, uh, classified documents under, under every sofa in every one of them. Could that be one of the ways of forcing them out? I certainly think so. You know, what's interesting um, about this whole classified document situation is in the beginning when they did the big raids on Donald Trump and Trump said, look, Everybody does this. This is nothing strange. Well, since we found Mike Pence with classified documents, uh, Biden, you know, has uh, uh, classified documents every under every nook and cranny of uh, property that he owns. We've also found out that for some strange reason, his son was paying him fifty thousand dollars a month for a house that's probably worth about far less than one tenth, maybe one one twentieth of what was actually being paid, so that appears to be clearly a laundering, launder, money laundering operation. But we know the 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 um, the tax bureau will not ever look into that. So uh, the bottom line is, I think this canceled out. You know, rather than if truly this was about justice, they'd say we must continue the investigation on Trump, and we must continue the investigation on Biden, and we must continue continue the uh, the um, investigation on Pence or whoever. But instead, they will cancel each other out, and there will be no um, classified document scandals of consequence addressed and you know, adjudicated by anyone. Let me go left field on you, Garland. Okay. I think they're going to run Michelle Obama as the Democratic candidate next time. 
I, you know, I think um, Gavin Newsom. I think they're going to look because, you know, for starters, the um, the national figures in the Democratic Party and the ruling elite class is thoroughly discredited. And as the Ukraine um, debacle, um, you know, expands, um, it's going to be difficult for anybody in any who in any way is related to this to be able to run for presidential office. You know, um, Michelle Obama doesn't have enough background. I don't know that the deep state would trust her, would trust her that she may not make some, that she may make some decisions that they're not happy with. My thoughts are they're looking at Gavin Newsom out in California. They know he will go along with the game plan and that they look for someone from the state, like like, uh, maybe the governor of uh, Michigan, I believe, Whitmer. Uh, Those are the two names that I'm hearing floated around Washington, D.C. on K Street quite frequently. And uh, it will be them against Trump or uh, uh, DeSantis? What's your take on that? I personally think it will be Trump. I don't know that DeSantis will run against Trump, but it would be Trump because Trump has a large uh, contingent of voters who are very solid. I also believe that Donald Trump is doing something that's really strategically brilliant right now. He recognizes that the Ukraine conflict is getting less popular and that as it falls apart, it will be recognized as a debacle of the, the, as I keep calling it, the mother of all debacles. And I think he realizes that once he gets out in front of it, he'll be able to say, I tried to tell everyone, but they wouldn't listen to me. They should listen to Trump. And I think Donald Trump may look at the Ukraine debacle as his ticket to the White House. And it will be hard for Democrats that, you know, uniformly supported this mess to uh, to get over that hump. So, yeah, I think Donald Trump and add this, the mainstream Republican Party was on board with this. Donald Trump is going to look like the prophet who told everyone what was coming once again, if only they'd listen to Trump. So I think um, the situation is setting up for Donald Trump to, to, to once again, to be in a strong position to, to win the White House in 2024. Here's a question, uh, Garland, just before I let you go, from Ian in Cardiff. Uh, do you know what's going on with the American tanks and other equipment coming in from the Taliban to Russia? This is the vast, vast military camp which Joe Biden left when he stole like a thief in the night from Afghanistan. Uh, Apparently the Taliban done a big parade uh, of all this military equipment and then shipped it to Russia. What a movie that would make. Well, what we're looking at now with the tanks, you know, it's interesting because if you read once again, if you go to the mainstream media and you see these articles on the tanks going to Russia, but if you read down the articles, what you find is that these uh, are basically orders for tanks. Even lately, they said they're going to provide long range missiles to attack Russia for Ukraine. But if you read the articles, you find that there are orders that are being sent to the defense contractors for tanks or, or whatever the case may be, and that there are also other countries that are in line in front of Ukraine. So what we basically have is a public relations push to use the term tanks. And if and as long as you only read the headlines, then you'll believe that there are some time soon there's tanks running, heading towards Russia and long-term missiles and things of that nature. But if you read the articles, you'll find that these things are being ordered from the military industrial complex. And 
you know, the, the, the comparison to Afghanistan that I use is Afghanistan was an ATM. It was an automatic teller machine for money laundering for the ruling elite. And now Ukraine is, in fact, the new ATM for the ruling elite. And that's the story on these tanks. And even if they sent them, they wouldn't do them any good. But apparently the the timing on the on the tanks is to ensure that the the um, the, the the conflict is over long before these tanks are even, uh, you know, they start welding them on the assembly lines. You're a star. Garland Nixon, thanks for joining us, as always. Uh, the poll has now 13,713 votes, but the result is not good for the United States. Very good for China, I must say. Even if it is a Chinese balloon, the vast majority, like three quarters of you, don't believe that it was spying. Maybe it was just out on a, on a, a day out. Uh, now, we've uh, talked about the balloon uh, for uh, much of the show, not because we agree that it is a serious matter, it turns out. We learned from Garland Nixon that uh, it happened twice during the presidency of Donald Trump, and it's happened already in the presidency of Joe Biden. So it can't be that serious, or we would have heard about it before now. It can't be that serious, or it would have been shot down, as Garland said, over the ocean. It would have been shot down by the Canadians. It would have been shot down when it first appeared across the territory of the United States. But it would have been shot down the day Joe Biden said it was going to be shot down, not three whole days and nights later. So it's probably nothing. I hope it turns out it isn't even Chinese. But here is the point. The United States has ringed China with what it calls, what the U.S. calls, a noose of military bases bristling with nuclear weapons. Not a barrage balloon, not a, a, a weather balloon, but nuclear armed bases all around China. Who's the aggressor in this picture? It you know, I sometimes feel like tearing my remaining hair out at the idiocy of it all, and especially at the fools that follow it. YouTube comments are flooding in. Thank you. Kevin Dillon gives uh, uh, a donation and says China has 600 satellites that fly around the world at 1,700 miles per hour, 24 hours a day. However, a piece of technology first seen in 1783, freaked America out. Go figure. Kevin, that is the comment of the night. Chris Cox says, China owns most of the farmland around Montana. They can just drive by to spy. Perhaps that's what they were doing. Just looking at how their crops were doing. Alessio Andres says, I personally think Michelle is the only one in the US who can win against the already experienced Trump. People would choose her for the novelty of it. Everyone knows Obama still has access to everything, presumably including Mrs. Obama. You know you get the flack when you're right over the target, and undoubtedly we are right over the target, on in particular the war drive against Russia and China. We're bang on about that. I've never been more certain of anything in my life. And I was pretty certain 
about the big issues that I've been involved in all of my life. And um, now, uh, more or less, a consensus that Scott Ritter and me were right about Iraq. So they're asking you to believe that we were right about Iraq and they were wrong, but they are right about Ukraine and we are wrong. And you need to make up your mind whether that sounds like a logical proposition or not. Me, I'm searching for the miscreant, uh, whoever they are that's knocked our phone line out. But as I keep saying to them, you will never stop me from speaking. I will be heard. Whatever you do, whatever wrecking tactics you do, even if you kill me with your bombs and your knives as the police are now hunting uh, the most recent threatened murderer, you will never stop me because all the words I've ever spoken will still be there in the ether. And I have many, many, many friends that will rush to pick up the microphone should I fall. And you can get a shadow band. Uh, I was recalling today the time I went to Brantford in South Africa and literally climbed in a window to see a person that didn't exist. Her name was Winnie Mandela. She had been subject to a banning order. She could not be quoted. She could not even be referred to in any public place or print. Her photograph could not be published. Nothing about her could ever be seen by the public. She was literally a non-person under a banning order. But it didn't stop Winnie Mandela. It didn't stop the great movement for democracy in South Africa. It didn't stop the African National Congress. It didn't stop Mkonti and Sezwe, the armed wing of the African National Congress. It didn't stop anything. They were swept away. But it turns out the Boers were just ahead of their time with their banning orders. Because many of us are to a greater or lesser extent, under banning orders today. I book and pay money to the ethical society for the use of a hall to have a public meeting involving two ambassadors, two serving members of the European Parliament, two former members of the British Parliament, grandees of the trade union and entertainment fields, and... It's cancelled because of a wave of abuse and intimidation such that the venue could not guarantee the safety of their property or their personnel. That's what they said in their email cancelling the event. And of course, they were not the first to cancel. They were the second to cancel, but they are the last to cancel because... We are going ahead on the 25th of February in a venue that can never be cancelled. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So no matter what wrecking tactics you adopt, you can bring down our phone lines, but you will not stop me from speaking. I can still speak. I could speak for two hours throughout the whole show if you cut off all our guests and didn't allow any telephone calls through. I could still keep talking. And I promise you that the great majority of the audience would stay to listen. 
So you're fighting a losing battle in this information war with us. Because just like on Iraq, we are right and you are wrong. And the whole world is going to see that all over again. And when I go to the Oxford Union to debate the British Defence Secretary and the head of the British Army, I have no doubt that there will be efforts made to try and stop that. But you will not stop it because the Oxford Union is made of sterner stuff than the so-called ethical society of Conway Hall. Uh, 15,000 nearly, a kick in the backside of 15,000 people have voted. And 75% of them think that the Chinese balloon was not spying. We've got lots more super chats. Rob Junot gives 13.99 Canadian dollars and says it's for the Moats America effort. That's right. It's an anti-war chest, you might say. If we can fill it and launch Moats America, we will be right in the heartland giving a platform to people like our regular American guests who will not just be appearing as guests will be running the show. Toby Titanic gives one pound. Thanks, Toby, for that. William Cole, 100 Swedish krona. God help us and protect us. Thank you, William. Uh, Jorge Cunha gives one pound 79. No to NATO, no to war. Venue cancelled. Your thoughts, Gigi? I've just given them. Jorge, the meeting goes ahead on the 25th of February in central London, Everyone will be informed the very night before. Uh, J.V. Manila gives Philippine peso 250. Thank you kindly. Johnny Preston, $9.99. Barbara Fortune, U.S. dollars, $4.99. Edmund Davis, 89 Danish krona. Alan, uh, R.S. Uh, Is that rubles? Has someone donated... Rubles? We can't take rubles, even though two of them's probably worth what five of them was just a year ago. Gigi, do you think we'll have a new BRICS currency? Uh, yeah, I do. The hegemony of the dollar, king dollar, is on its deathbed. I'm absolutely sure about that. Scott gives 20 euros. Scott, a Glaswegian, now living and working in Germany. The revolution is not an apple that falls when it's ripe. You have to make it fall, said Comandante Che Guevara. Keep fighting the good fight, George. Always behind you, Maka. Thank you, Scott. I'm uh, thinking of ways in which I can speak to the German people uh, more. Um, I'm working on one or two ideas on that. Uh, you can maybe help us on that, Scott. Uh, Pater Liano gives 20 pounds. Putin's impulsive annexation of Crimea back in 2013, with the benefit of hindsight, has been proven to be the right decision. Look how many the ethnically Russian people, the Ukrainian right, killed in the Donbass. 15,000. Indeed so. Uh, as a matter of fact, you could say that the Russian special military operation should have been launched in 2014 amidst the convulsion which overthrew the elected president of Ukraine and installed the kind of regime that has brought us to this bloody pass. Harry Harrison gives £10. If the balloon was on an intelligence-gathering mission 
over America. It was well and truly a waste of time from the outset. I mean, it's kind of obvious, Harry. Uh, you know, there's far better ways of spying than sending up a big balloon that everybody can see. And Montana? Seriously? What's there to see in Montana? With all good due respect to the good people of that state. Stephen Grunveld says, as a South African, I am horrified at the parallels I see in Europe and America to the actions of the apartheid regime that you just alluded to. We have to fight for freedom all the time. Indeed, Stephen, there is no final victory. There is no final defeat. Uh, you have to fight for economic freedom in South Africa now. We have freedom there from apartheid, but we don't have economic freedom for the great mass of the South African people. I was listening again to uh, Malema's oration at the funeral of Winnie Mandela, which remains the greatest speech of mass oratory that I have ever, ever heard. Ron Sin says, George, keep up the good work with love from Suriname. God bless Suriname. J.J. Gill gives two pounds. Is it reckless insanity or calculated wickedness? J.J., that is the $64,000 question. Are our leaders fools or knaves? And which would be worse? Darren Arney gives 10 U.S. dollars. Disband NATO, world peace, go bricks. And Joe Stanley says, George, you've had me in stitches all evening. If you ever want another career, comedianship awaits. Happy balloon flying super show, Dr. Joe in East Anglia. Well, Joe, you can, of course, be a comedian and become a president. As Zelensky proved, and as I hope Jimmy Dore will prove in a couple of years' time. Jack Coe gives five pounds. Hi, I saw your debate with Christopher Hitchens again last night. Any memories from this? Always, also was wearing my Celtic top in the gym today in your honour. Thank you, Jack. I was in JD Sports today looking at Celtic tops. Uh, not JD Sports, Sports Direct. Uh, and uh, I saw one that I'm going to get for my boy that he doesn't yet have. Uh, yeah, the grapple in the Apple was an extraordinary event. Two Brits knocking hell out of each other in New York City with thousands of Yanks queuing around the block to pay top dollar to come in and watch us do so. Uh, the video of the event is, I think, epic. Uh, I'm in no doubt that I comprehensively won the debate. But for me, it was a bit like Ali fighting, uh, I don't know, Ernie Terrell, uh, sadness at what the old man had become, prematurely old. Uh, drunk, sodden, maybe other things too. Uh, he was out of shape and his mind in even worse shape than his flabby figure. Uh, he had once written like an angel, but he had joined in the service of the devil. Even supporting the Bush government, not just in Iraq, but even supporting them over their performance in New Orleans in Hurricane uh, Katrina. I mean, he, that was, I think, the bottom that Christopher Hitchens uh, reached. And so there was a hint of sadness 
as I jabbed and jabbed and demanded, what's my name? Patrick is in British Columbia on the one phone line we've still got working, my apologies, to the, I'm told, just under 200 people that called the show this evening. But we've got one line, and it's Patrick in British Columbia, as we still fondly call it, on the west coast of Canada. Go ahead, Patrick. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm glad I got through. Um, I was just calling to see what your thoughts are were on um, sort of academia's role in the uh, Ukraine uh, crisis. Academia's role? Uh, say, say more. Well, um, I find when I'm in my political science classes and um, I'm listening to these professors talk, there's no nuance given anything. It's all, all the narrative is that Putin went in like a madman for no reason. Uh, there's no context given to what was going on in the Donbass region. There's nothing, there's no talks about Minsk um, agreements. It's a complete joke. So everyone thinks that Putin's gone in like a, for, with no reason, with no rhyme or reason. And it's, um, but it's not even academia too, it's more, it's Canadian mainstream media as well. There's hardly any um, alternative viewpoints on us. No, it's a very clever and erudite uh, point to make, uh, bringing us towards the end of the show, so I can't do it uh, the justice it deserves. But look, academia, not that I know anything about academia. I left school and went straight into the factories. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm capable of making a, a Michelin ZX radial tyre, but I never opened a book in any academic institution, so I'm not best placed to comment on it. But from what I know of it, it's just like the mass media, uh, like the political class, they all live in an ivory tower, which is might as well be in that movie Elysium, uh, living in a giant balloon, uh, above the earth. They don't live on the same earth as the rest of us. They don't live the same lives as the rest of us. And consequently, their analyses and their predictions of events are constantly wrong. This has been one of the main features of this age, of my political lifetime, how experts are increasingly detached from reality increasingly often wrong and increasingly not believed. I was born and brought up in a time when we listened to experts, when we imagined that experts were worth listening to and acting on their advice. But as the Brexit poll showed, it was almost in inverse proportion. The more experts you rolled out to tell us what a boon the European Union has been, the more people looked at each other and said, we actually live under the European Union. We know what our life has been like over the last 40 years of British membership of the European Union. It is nothing like what you are claiming that it is. And therefore, when the British people got the chance in the referendum, in uh, 2014, 
2016 rather, they decided to leave. That may have been the right decision, it may have been the wrong decision. I believe it was the right decision. But whether right or wrong, it was taken in the teeth of the protestations of almost everybody in academia, of almost everybody in the commanding heights of the mainstream British media. Virtually everybody in the commanding heights of the political class. It was taken in the teeth of their advice and exhortation, which tells you something. And if that's what they're saying in academia about the Ukraine affair, then I'm glad I'm not yet, at least, paying good money in university tuition fees for any of my children. Alas, alas, it is the witching hour. My apologies to everyone who didn't get on the air and might have, but for the problems with the telephone lines. I apologize if there were any technological hiccups in the course of the show. I won't know until I watch it back as soon as I come back off air. But I think that this show tonight has been profoundly important. I think it will be looked back on as a show which took place on the edge, on the cusp of a very decisive series of events in which the debacle of the NATO aggression against Russia fought over the dead bodies of the Ukrainian people will be seen in hindsight to have been around about this time, this day, this week, and the weeks to come. The war is lost, at least according to the Israeli security service Mossad. The cost in blood and treasure virtually incalculable. Nothing will ever be the same again, neither between East and West, and nor, I think, within the West either. But it's all I've got time for, but the good news is that, God willing, and the technology working, I'll be back again on Wednesday at the slightly later hour of 9 p.m. UK time. So as I say, almost a million people watched the mother of all talk shows last week. Let's top a million next week. Bring a viewer. Bring me just one other viewer. Why don't you? Good night.